0: Hey Mike, do you fancy some raw food? Oh yeah. Steak tartare, sushi. Oh, delicious. Or tell you what, let's get Mike Davis on, and he'll tell us whether we're allowed to have it or not. Oh, okay.
1: Hi, I'm Mike Brampton,
0: and my name is Julian Ho.
1: Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Mike, this is this is serious stuff because you've you've covered a lot in your career, and you're still obviously out there. Um, championing various things and, and a lot of research and work yeah. and, and and writing um, but what I think our audience really need to know is w- what is your favorite bread
2: what is my favorite bread yeah <laughs> at the moment I like sourdough bread actually, at the moment, I'm I'm rather partial to most types of bread. And the last loaf I bought, I actually went back to Roots and I bought a toasty white sliced because I haven't had one of them for about 25 years. And I just saw it and I thought, do you know what, I fancy some toast with proper white bread. So that's where I am. But normally I'll be buying healthy stuff, apparently, well, allegedly healthy stuff. But sourdough is one of my favorites at the moment.
0: Jolly good. good. I, I like the sourdough. And, yeah. and sourdough has come up a few times on the show. Other than liking bread, however, Mike, you are a vet. So what made you want to become a vet
1: then, Mike? Why, why did you even start on this line?
2: Well, I was always biology orientated and a lot of my family were involved in animals one way or another. So my mother bred German Shepherd dogs and showed them. Uh, and my uncle had a, a, a... Well, he didn't have a farm. He, he worked on a farm, you know, milking the cows for the farmer. Mm-hmm. And he had a cottage. Mm-hmm. Every holiday, I used to go down there and, um, you know, help him out. And then um, all my mates were going to go and do medicine. And I just preferred the zoology side. In fact, originally, I was going to do zoology. Right. But mm-hmm. when I looked into that, there were no jobs in zoology, or at least there were, teaching zoology. Or maybe, if you're lucky, you get a research project. But there wasn't a lot... And I quickly switched. And I, I spent as a kid, I spent a lot of time at Chester Zoo and other places, and basically just became totally engrossed with the whole idea of, uh, yeah, I want to work with animals, make them healthy, you know, the medical side. All my three mates, mm. my best mates at, at uh, We're All Grammar School, they went on to be doctors. Well, one of them went to be a GP, another one went to be a surgeon, another one went to be a medic. And what happens is, they clip their wings quite early in the career. They have to make a decision, mm-hmm. what to track themselves into quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if you then if you go on and be it like a surgeon, it's very really hard. It's almost impossible to go back and become a cardiologist or something else. And that's the yeah. fantastic thing yeah. for me as a vet. And I was at one point going to be 100% orthopaedic, but then mm-hmm. I saw the light. I, I ran a bsava meeting uh, up in the northwest region when a guy called. Mark Morris Jr. came over from uh, America. And I got a phone call from head office. We all did actually, all the regional. I was secretary, I think, Say, oh, it might have been chairman, saying, you know, oh, this guy's over. He's got a few days spare. Does anybody want to hear him speak on clinical nutrition? And in the Northwest, we were always a pretty game bunch, you know. So we said, oh, we'll have him, you know, next week or wherever it was. And, you know, we got 60 <laughs> people to turn out. And he blew us away with the science about uh, the importance of nutrition in kidney disease and in heart disease. And none of us had heard any of it before, not a single, not a word about, we already got a word about nutrition, never mind about clinical nutrition. Mm-hmm. And he blew us away. And that's how I got interested in nutrition in the beginning. I won't bore you with the rest of the story. It'll take all the rest of this uh, this session. So I, I turned away from becoming a 100% surgeon because I love surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and gradually, you know, as you now know, I'm, I'm a, well, I still do general clinical work uh, when I can, but, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time as a consultant just doing clinical nutrition, yeah. So
0: you you, you are a, an RCBS recognised specialist in nutrition and uh, and a fellow of the Royal College of retro So we should be solutions. Yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, no, not really? not really, not really. Not really. <laughs> no, these days anybody can apply to be a fellow. Don't worry about it. But the reason I got a fellowship was at the time... After I'd left Hills, when I worked for Hills full-time when they launched into Europe and worked for them full-time, I went to the Royal Edgar College, and um, I would like to have done a a qualification because my knowledge of clinical nutrition was so high at that point. Well, hopefully it still is. I wanted to do a qualification, but there was no diploma exam in Europe. I helped establish the european um, college of comparative nutrition you know but actually uh, it was nearly all farm animal when the people in germany and places took over and i wasn't interested in going back my age and stage by then because i'm talking about you know well in some Career, I wasn't interested in going back and doing poultry nutrition and pig nutrition again. So, the, and and even the, Ameri- the only exam other than uh, well, the first one they weren't running an exam, and the only exam in the world was in America, and that was the same. It was very dominated by agricultural animals, which no interest to me. So I approached the Royal College and said, uh, "Yeah, you know, I am qualified. I've done lots of stuff. What do you think?" And they said, "Yeah, you're qualified." to do a diploma, but we don't run one, so we'll set one for you, which is what they did. And what was quite funny was I'd left Hills by then, but they set an exam and they appointed as my examiners the head of Waltham <laughs> and somebody else who was part of the Mars organisation. So that was really weird because I was now going to be examined by my peers who had been professional adversaries in the field until only a year earlier. Did <laughs> you was um, It was quite... Easy an interesting experience actually mm. it was quite interesting i, I, should, I, did, I should i should
0: just say so really i should just me. say sorry sorry just, just to interrupt you uh so some of our listeners aren't vets, believe it or not uh, and so just to explain to them that uh, mm-hmm. hills waltham uh are adversaries they're both uh big food manufacturers pet food manufacturers yeah um but they they are uh, very very much uh, competitive or competing against each other for yeah. the share of the market. So you uh, were being uh, being examined by your uh, your enemy. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. and, and you passed. Well, you
2: really? my enemies, and, and obviously it's always very professional. It's a really professional relationship. But there were areas where, um, and based on the science that I knew, based on the science, that, let's say Jimmy Simpson, who was. Very much worked a lot with pedigree. And was one of my other co-examiners. Uh, they were looking at things differently to how um, you know I'd looked at things based on the evidence that I had and that they had, and so on and so forth. So there was there was a competitive element, but it was always in good. Absolutely, you know, mm. a good taste. There was no animosity there whatsoever. It was, uh, it was, it was good fun actually. The, big, the biggest problem I had with the exam wasn't them. It was, it was hard work. I have to tell you that because it's like um, I think I'm just clicking this way. Um, it was hard work because I had to um, do, you know, uh, like two, three-hour written papers and practicals and all sorts of stuff. Um, but th- the hardest part of all was um, when I went to the Viva. Jimmy Simpson said to me. Do you know that last question you answered? You didn't write very much, Mike. I said, "No, there's a reason for that, Jimmy, because after six hours of writing, I couldn't move my wrists. I mean, it was an absolute agony because, <laughs> you know, even then I couldn't remember the last time I'd yeah. written anything. It's all on the all on the keyboard now. You just tried mm. writing non-stop, for, well, with a, 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 a little break in between for six hours. It's pretty impossible. So uh, that was really yeah, nice yeah, to <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I got through that one. So that's <laughs> well so that's then. why I've got the fellowship. Uh, and, yes. you know, one of my claims to fame is when I did two certificates when I was in practice, Um, I only, I did them just for my own personal education, not for any qualifications or letters. In fact, at that time, when I got my first two certificates, you weren't allowed to put letters after your name. The Royal College changed that later. Mm-hmm. Now, the only thing you could do was change an M to an F on the, on the Royal College thing. That was all. But mm-hmm. then they changed it so you could put certificates and diplomas after your name because people wanted to do that because other professors do. And that's where we are now. And now there's some friends of mine that have got, you know, in fact, they can't get it all on. on. They need a, a large size envelope to pay the postage to get all the qualifications on. Can, can I ask you what, what sort of state you think the profession's in at the moment? Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's it's one of the best professions you can have, because there are so many things you can do in your day job, interesting first opinion practice, but you can also diversify into any any sector that you actually you know like and that doesn't matter what your interest is whether you're a desk person or you know you like the high end stuff um you know imaging or surgery or working in zoos or you know I mean I, I nearly went to the zoo actually but there weren't any opportunities when I first qualified so I didn't do that mm-hmm. um, and and you can take it to the level you want you can you can be I wouldn't say just a first opinion clinician because uh, if you do it properly, it's fantastic and, and there's lots of things you can learn and do. Um, but, you know, you can become a, a really a, you know specialist down to micro micro level if you want microbiome or whatever you want to do. So there's so many opportunities with a veterinary degree. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing, it's a great profession to work in uh, and working with animals is great because they can't answer your back really. They can bite you, but they can't answer your back. Um, and, um, <laughs> you know, I, I find that, more interesting i'm talking to my medic friends they have lots of issues with clients uh, well patients because they don't communicate they lie like our owners lie to us <laughs> but their patients lie to them or don't tell them the whole truth and and that's much more difficult for them whereas uh, because they they then have a problem if they want to say well they don't believe the patients <laughs> that's an issue whereas we we, we can ignore our own And just focus on the animal and we can get all the information we need Mm. uh, by properly examining the the animal and asking the right questions and then okay sometimes we have to take what they say with a pinch of salt personally not happy about the way the profession is going or has been going for a number of years now people who who, uh, are investing in groups are controlling what people in practice can do at grassroots level So, Mm -hmm. if you're a a, a company with an interest, obviously they would want their products to be on the recommended list that people can use Mm -hmm. uh, at at a competitive price, Um, but then they should not be able to interfere with clinical decision making, providing it's sensible decision making. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was what was happening anyway, uh, BVA saw my letter, they really thought it was an interesting topic. And as I worked for one of the groups, I am talking from experience they asked me to write a a, a larger article, which I did, which has been published now. And I put in there some home truths about what the groups are doing and how it's not all positive. In fact, it's mostly not positive stuff in my experience. Mm -hmm. Over the eight years I was at Nottingham University, working almost exclusively with final year students, one of the things I noticed was a, a, a dreadful change in a lot of their attitudes to the profession you know, when I qualified and you qualified, I'm sure, uh, we wanted to get out into practice, earn our wings, you know, get all the basics right and, and learn all the lessons mm-hmm. we have to learn and then move on and, and advance what we were doing to a much higher level. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of these new graduates, are not interested in that. They, they, want to, they want to go out, they want to earn a high income for as, as short a period of work as they can get. So they want to work three or four days a week. In fact, most people in practice now only work three or four days a week, uh, and they want to get as high a salary as they can. And they would; some of them would rather do lo- go straight to locoming without any... And you know what it is in practice at the moment. we were short on vets. A lot of the experienced mm-hmm. vets have sold out and left the profession totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's, that's left a lot of practices being run by uh, relatively junior clinicians and even worse, uh, relatively, um, in some cases, I have to say, poorly trained locums who've come from abroad before Brexit. Uh, because, I, I don't know if you know, but in, I, I was instrumental uh, in trying to get um, uh, European qualification established many years ago. And we got all the deans of vet schools together and said, look, the standards, because we only, the RCVS only recognise a handful of European veterinary degrees so other people had to do an entrance exam Mm. when we entered Brexit that went you know we we had to allow anybody carrying what was called a veterinary degree into the country with no checks Mm. on them no no standard setting well you know the last time I knew in Italy I think there were 13 veterinary schools only three of which had achieved the European standards now, that might be wrong now because that might be a few years out of date. So, but we were letting in these, these Italian graduates and other countries, not just Italians, where they <laughs> hadn't had a high enough standard of, of training to do the job, but we had to let them in. And so what, what I found when I was director of a region for one of the big groups, what I found was, unfortunately, because of what they were doing, which was kicking out you know the experienced clinicians to replace them with the juniors, um, they couldn't replace them easily because there's not enough vets around. And so it, they were running on locum power. And so the standard of locum can be from excellence. So don't get me wrong, some really excellent locums <laughs> right down to diabolical, some dreadful locums out there. Um, and, you know, that is not good for... General standards in practice. And we've lost too many experienced vets who are in the middle ages, you know, not old, not, not geriatric like me, but, you know, in the 40s and 50s <laughs> who sold out, taking the money, thank you very much, not doing very much. Now, the, the, the consequence of that, the one of the main consequences then, is that there aren't enough people to see clients on a regular basis. So, in other words, the traditional um, veterinary surgeon client bond. And relationship has gone. Mm -hmm. So now, if you go to one of the big groups, particularly the groups, or some of the other practices as well, where they still can't get staff, uh, you will not be guaranteed to see the same vet every time with the same case. Which is what in my practice we always strove to do. That it would be very rare if I saw an animal with a problem, I didn't see it the next time. I would Mm -hmm. book it in to see me, not make an appointment next week. You know see me when am I next available for you to see me so I can keep continuity of the case and that's gone in a lot of the practices now which is, I think I'll give you a a really a true example Uh, before I left the University of Nottingham um, I was running a, uh, a clinic with one of the final students because what, what, how I did it was they were, they did the consultation with me in the room and then we'd talk about the case outside and then they'd tell the client. So they did all the communicating with the clients unless I had to step in and, you know, do something. Anyway, I, I looked at the um, uh, cases before they came in and one of them I said to the student, how many clients do you think this, uh, sorry, I mean, how many vets do you think this client has seen in the last 12 months with this dog for the same clinical condition? And she said, and I said this a lot, she said, "Oh, I don't have seven or eight, so we'll count them. And I, this is true, I was going to be the 21st different vet to see that client with that dog for the same condition in less than 12 months, which well, is that's, absolutely atrocious. That's, that's that's, that's um, and, and, you know, that that's what's going on all over the country. That's, that's and, dire. Uh, I just think it's it, what we've lost we've lost the relationship now.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So okay. So, that, so that's, that's a, my worst concern is that. Yeah, that's a dire situation.
2: What's the solution? Well, the solution is um somehow practices, even if a part of a group so and um, so don't get me wrong, I, I I sort of understand some of the motivation for having a large group because of economies of scale. You can put in place, actually, if you do, they claim to do high-level you know, um, uh, work uh, and do, putting in place procedures, you know, what of course standard operating procedures, SOPs, which actually make everything run smoother and better and for the health of the animals. Of course, when you actually dig deeper, it's not true. They think they're doing that, but it's not what's happening at the ground level. Um, so what needs to happen is these practices, they need to bring back the fundamental basic requirements of a good veterinary relationship with a, with a, an owner which is that you see the well, a vet doesn't have to be you but a vet sees that client with the case and then they try to ensure continuity of of care for that animal because mm-hmm. it is 21 people. I mean, even if we all said the same thing, we're all going to say it in a slightly different way. I know from the records that different people like to treat those conditions differently. Mm. So just imagine the confusion that clients, every time they go in, they're being told something, even if it's similar, it's slightly different yeah. every time. Well, one
0: of the things I love about being a vet is that client patient bond yeah. the, the client bet bond i, I love it and, and yeah. you know I, I, i'm fortunate enough to have been at my practice now for 16 years uh i've, I've been through several generations of a lot of people's pets and yeah. they are the the, the the clients are almost family we know each other very well
1: that's not what you what see in the Jones, profession okay. i absolutely
0: agree with them well no i don't like her she's horrible okay. but so um, the <laughs> what we're seeing in the profession is, is you're absolutely right we're seeing uh younger less experienced vets uh without mentors to guide them and, and often yeah. to compound problems those uh less experienced vets are, are on part-time jobs so they're working yeah. two or three days a week now i i'm, I'm I'm going to have to bite my
2: tongue here because I'm working two or three days ago. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah ma- magic wand, you could wave, what would you do? Uh, well, I think I've one of the things I hope that my correspondence through the veterinary record would do would be to shake up the Royal College because the, the fundamental problem here is, I don't know if you remember, but when I was in practice, you weren't allowed to advertise, that was it. Veterinary practices could only be owned by veterinary surgeons and we were bound by very strict codes of conduct about how we managed ourselves in public and spoke to media and all that stuff. And of course, in fact, I don't know if you know, but this year, the Royal College have relaxed the rules now because I was helping um, this, a startup vegan company, um, which was founded by one of my students. Uh, it's called Omni. I was helping them from January through to recently. And, um, you know, the, the uh, guy who is one of the vets who started it, he got in trouble with the Royal College. So people complained about what he was saying about his own brand on internet websites and things like that and in, in pamphlets. Well, you know, at the end of the day, if you if you invent something, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what profession you're in, you should be entitled to say, well, actually, this is me and I invented this <laughs> and yes. talk about it. And And he got his knuckles wrapped. In fact, they've relaxed the rules now. Which I think is 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 right, but it depends how far it goes. I mean, because yes. you know, SuperVet uh, advertises one specific pet insurance company. Now you see that wouldn't have been allowed in the past. If you if you yes. we were allowed yes. to promote pet insurance companies, but the rule was I don't know if you remember we had to we had to stock them all. We couldn't just have one in the waiting room. So so we had to absolutely. have all of them we, we, available we, for we, our we, clients and recommend home. pet insurance. But
0: yeah. We normally hold the brochures out and sort of have one just an inch or so higher than the others and wink at the owner and say, you know, Here we, pick a brochure. We're not,
2: we're not allowed to promote yeah. one. Wink, there
0: you wink, go but. pick a brochure, any brochure, any <laughs> brochure you like.
1: You know, pick a brochure. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And they think they can run a practice like a retail outlet, but I'm afraid you cannot do that um, because uh, without damaging standards. Because as soon as you take the experienced people out of the practice the quality of work has to go down end of story
0: you're you're not afraid of uh, of causing a bit of a stir though are you mike um and i remember a, a year about two years back at bvna uh, i chaired uh, a discussion group or, or a debate didn't i um you were on one side and various people were on, on the other side uh, are we going to go down that avenue and
2: chat about raw food oh absolutely it should be everybody should be talking about raw food and get away from the myth that it can be a debate because there is no debate to be had and i you know the the the, the fact is unfortunately um that vets in practice and particularly people who are interested and believe for some reason in feeding raw do not know the real risks most people, I, I lecture a lot in practices. I go in practices and I lecture, I've, you know, I've been on the lecture circuit for the last few months. Actually, I'm exhausted because I haven't stopped. Talking. I even did a three-day 28-module clinical nutrition course just two weeks ago. And then I was at BVNA Congress. So I've been speaking about this subject all the time. And people in practice do not know the facts because nobody is telling them the facts. And I was going to make this my my CPD thing, so we can do it now if you like. But I'll take a bit Ooh. more than a minute, though. So let's get on
0: to your sixty second CPD. Uh, you're willing to take the challenge? Yes. Okay. So, so, okay. So,
1: Mike Mike Davis, sixty second CPD. You're up for the challenge? Yes. Yes. Excellent. So, what's your sixty second CPD going to be on?
2: It's going to be on... We'll do an abbreviated version of the title I sent you, and we're just going to say it's going to be on lack of knowledge about clinical nutrition in veterinary practice.
1: Lack of knowledge, right. Okay. okay. So, here we go then. 60-second CPD. Dr Mike Davis on lack of, of knowledge on clinical nutrition. Starting now.
2: I go around veterinary practices all over the country and the world... I find that very few practices know what they're talking about when it comes to clinical nutrition. In particular, for example, everybody talks about things like uh, cleft palate uh, and skeletal deformities being genetic. Most of them are actually nutritionally related due to poor nutrition in pregnant uh, animals. For example, did you know what the cause, a nutritional cause of cleft palate is? most people do not know. And yet in the 60s, we knew that it was due to excess vitamin A. It could also be due to deficient vitamin A. Almost every single skin disease that you see has almost certainly got a nutritional cause, not an allergy or some other, other factor. And you should be ruling out all those amino acids and essential nutrients like trace elements, which can be causing every single clinical sign you see in skin can be caused by a nutritional problem, which no veterinary practices Actually, look for because they don't know about it. And lack of knowledge is lack of ability to diagnose. Wow!
0: And that and that's perfect. That's spot on. Sixty seconds. Mike Davis, well done. That's fantastic. fantastic. What I liked. liked
1: was the way that Mike Mm -hmm. let the clock run down ten seconds
0: before he started and still got it all in. because because he knew that was how long the reflective question was going to take presumably. So so what is the what is the question? Uh,
2: So my reflective question is, when was the last time you asked your owners what they actually feed to their pregnant animals during pregnancy? Because that can have a massive difference on uh, the newborn, but also on animals in later life, which we now know. So what, when did you last do that? And if you have asked them, do you think you know how to interpret their response properly?
0: That's an that's an excellent question. Two two
1: Sorry. excellent questions. That's two, two brilliant questions. So where do you find the answers, then, Mike? Me? Well, I,
0: I'll that's tell you. What, my I, day of course. <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> was, was going to say, I, I was I was lucky enough to have Mike as uh, as a lecturer at the RBC, yeah. so I, I know part of that. And having spoken to him over the years when we yeah. met up at conferences, I, I now know the sort of things to to brush up on. If I see him walking towards me, I quickly Google what's up in nutrition, yeah. and then I can have a word with him. But. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We, I think, that the the majority of vets, I'd, I'd say, I'd say every vet in practice, there may be a few exceptions, but every vet in practice knows far too little about nutrition to be able to answer
2: those questions adequately. Yeah. they do, and and yeah. because of that, lots of diagnoses are missed, misdiagnoses are made, or well, animals end up on long term, serious drugs to manage the signs, which work, mm-hmm. but of course have secondary effects which are not desirable and if if it turns out it was not necessary to give the drugs it's a totally unnecessary thing to be doing and potentially harmful and there was a very interesting paper a few years ago where uh, one of the vet schools in america they had a a cohort of dogs which had been diagnosed as having dietary allergies right and were on treatment for dietary allergies or uh, and or other allergies and when they went back and looked at the the cases they found that actually there weren't allergies at all they were nutritional deficiencies which showed the same clinical signs as dietary allergy and the thing about a nutritional deficiency is if you've got a problem let's say you've got uh, i'll give you a really good example right copper copper is a really important uh trace element we know, David and I at Nottingham did studies in the UK, and we found that the vast majority of pet foods we analysed, which is about just under 200, in this country, do not comply with FEDAF guidelines, right? And a lot of them are very low in copper, but also very high in other minerals that interfere with copper. We found that one in five wet pet foods in this country, which says complete on the label, did not meet the minimum requirements for copper. And that's before they've got high levels of zinc or calcium, which can also interfere with it, right? So there's a lot of animals out there which are copper deficient. And we know that because lots of black animals go brown. And the main reason for that is a lack of copper, right? If you've got lack of copper, you've got a lack of copper metalloenzymes. And, And copper metalloenzymes are involved in melanin production which is why they go brown if you haven't got enough copper. And, of course, melanin is really important in the skin, and I'm, I'm not going to go on and bore you with all the rest of the details, but there are lots of things that copper and other, other elements do in the body, which, if they're deficient, lead to skin problems and skin disease and clinical signs, and there's a list of mile long of them all. Basically, what they found was that what they changed the diets, and they'd assumed because the diet change had caught cured the animal, said it was because it was a dietary allergy to something in the other diet, right? But actually what Ooh. they found was, no, what they'd done was they'd fed a food which actually met AFCO guidelines, it was in America, and they'd all they'd done is replace a deficiency. So I don't know what the numbers are because nobody's looked. Uh, and when I've reviewed uh, in the past skin cases, a lot of dermatologists in the past would talk about you know giving uh, essential fatty acids And seeing a massive improvement in skin and stuff like that, and in and things, but they never actually looked at what the animals were being fed in the first place. They never bothered to analyse what they were on in the first place. So if you give any nutrient, nutritional substance, and an animal improves in some way, the most likely thing is you've you've corrected what was a deficiency before. Now the food might not be deficient. The food might not be deficient. It might have enough in according to you know the guidelines, but the animal itself might have difficulty getting it into the body so that's the sort of story we've got with sure, the, sure. the malamutes and zinc uh, deficiency where they get problems because even if the zinc's in the foods they can't easily get it into the system to utilise but you know if you take that away strip that away, and just go back to basics any animal with the classic skin science of scale pruritus, erythema you know the list goes on you, uh, hair loss, alopecia you know nutrition should be top of the diagnosis list and ruled out before we start reaching for, particularly some of the more potent drugs which are commonly being used in skin cases now. They're not necessary. Now, okay, if you can't find the cause, that's different. And and people spend, sure. uh, you know, to get a food analysed, to, you know, to get the food analysed, because unfortunately you can't trust, nowadays we now know you can't trust what a label says about product being complete. I would trust the veterinary companies, Because we we know that they came out really well in our studies, Um, not 100% well, I have to tell you, but pretty well compared to all the rest. Mm. But I would I would um, if you've got an animal if it's on the same diet all the time, I would, or if it's on a wacky homemade diet, which is even more common now, uh, I would uh, recommend you get the food analysed, and you'll be surprised what you will find. And you know, and we have to know a bit about nutrition. Because you have to know not just about the absolute amount that you can analyse, but what else is in there that can interfere with it. Yes. Right. Yeah. So you know it's, it's very trendy at the moment to go for um, plant-based foods. Well, some of those plants, uh, particularly things like you know cabbages and broccoli and healthy things like that, and they have, have uh, a lot of minerals tied up in, with phytate, with phytic acid. Now that means you you analyse the food. Okay, it's it's in there in plenty of amounts, but actually it's not bioavailable to the animal so huh. you can be fed there you can still get a deficiency of something if if it's interfered with, with by fiber or by phytate well, something like that so well, it's not simple well, to get an analyzed I'll, I'll give you an
0: example uh, as well Mike, just to to, to help with help to substantiate that a little bit uh, and that's the the idea of feeding raw eggs as an increased a booster of, yeah. of protein because uh, that um, albumin uh,
2: right oh, writing thing—it it binds to other proteins, doesn't it, and limits the. Yeah, their avidin. Other, yeah, avidin binds biotin, mm. and my aunt actually got herself a puppy a few years ago, and I told her to put it on a. Well, in those days, I would have said any go, you know, any reputable company's, you know, complete puppy food. She did that, and I phoned to see how she'd get Sylvia, oh, yeah, and I'm putting um, six egg whites a day on it because the breeder says it's a good protein source. And that's <laughs> the one time you do need to have good quantities of the essentials <laughs> is in a growing puppy, that's when you're most likely going to see a problem deficiency. Fortunately, I managed to stop it. But yeah, no, um, biotin in that level, uh, it would be bound by that, that level of egg white. So it's absolutely a no-no, yeah. But there are more serious things going wrong uh, in feeding animals at the moment, as you're probably aware, with raw feeding and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's really <laughs> u- unbelievable. <laughs> Let's
0: let's get on to, to raw feeding. So we touched yeah. on that, and I'd like to I'd like to come back to the vegan feeding later because that's another yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, food yeah. choice that the people want to make for their pets. Yeah. But raw, raw yeah. feeding. So here we go. We we've got we've got a dog. It was a wolf uh, fifteen thousand years ago. Um, well, w- wolves eat um, deer, so you know your dog should have a. I don't know if, if wolves eat deer yeah. in the wild. Yeah, your yeah dog so how many years? <laughs>
2: So, how many how many years do you think humans have been cooking their food for?
0: Uh, well, quite, quite a few, quite a few years. Um, so, I'm going I'm to go for. Actually, I'm, I'm, I would not. I wouldn't do that answer justice. I'd be guessing. I'd, I'd say no, come on, 15, just, just, 000, just, have a, just have a wild round. guess. You, you can't go twenty
2: thousand years.
1: You can't go beyond six thousand. The planet wasn't around oh,
0: No, hold on. Hold on. It's much longer than that, isn't it? Because Alice Roberts, Professor Alice Roberts, um, did a a show about it. So it's it's a couple of hundred thousand
2: years, isn't it? Yeah. It's at least proven 250,000 years. And we've been using fire in other ways for 400,000 years. And they think it may well have been used for cooking before that, but they haven't found the evidence for it. So it's a quarter million years. Man has been cooking food before we eat it. Um, we know, first of all, the idea that wild wolves are uh, obligate carnivores like cats is untrue. There's a paper been stud, put, uh, published in Greece where they examined the stomach contents of 32 wild wolves, and they found that plant material constitutes a significant part of their daily intake. So they're not strictly omnivores mm. anymore. We, we know that. Um, the dog has undergone a number of genetic changes, which now allow them to uh, utilize plant material. So we know there's been ten gene changes, which allow them to be able to digest and utilize starches, which is the main form of carbohydrate in plant material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a list of my long of adaptations that the, uh, the the domesticated dog has undergone since um, you know it was originally you know a wild animal. So they they have got um, um, taste buds for sweet. They have got um, uh, um, uh, digestive enzymes, amylase, alpha amylase in the saliva. At least a lot of them now do know do have, uh, and they, so that could, that's the first stage of breakdown of carbohydrates as well. They've also got really high hepatic glucokinase levels, which is the enzyme that's essential for breaking down glucose. Now the cat lacks all of them. The domesticated cat does not have uh, or hardly any amylase at all. It hardly has uh, any um, um, taste buds, and, and and doesn't have any that uh, that deal with sugar, uh, uh, and they also uh, lack totally lack glucokinase in the liver, which begs lots yes. of questions because a lot of cats are on carbohydrate based diets, you know, um, you know, um, dry diets, and uh, mm-hmm. what the, the question then is, well, if they because we do know, despite the lack of amylase, they are able to digest and absorb. Starches, but what happens to that carbohydrate? If, if the glucose isn't being moved through the liver in a, in a timely fashion, because the liver doesn't have any glucokinase there, that suggests that the glucose might be slushing around in the system longer, and that be, might be one of the reasons why we're seeing such high levels of diabetes, you know, type two in the cat. Because when I qualified in the seventies, we very we would have recognised diabetes because we recognised diabetes in the dog. Like we would have recognised hypothyroidism if cats had it then, but they didn't have it then, at least not in any significant numbers. Mm -hmm. Now there's another change though, because obviously obesity is much more prevalent in cats now than it used to be when I qualified, and that's another contributory factor. So there's several contributory factors, but I I think um, we can't actually totally rule out the possibility that high carbohydrate loading in cats is not a good idea. As far as dogs are concerned, though there's no problem whatsoever they can do. They are truly, genuinely omnivores, like we indeed are, and they can survive absolutely, perfectly well and have done for many years just on plant-based foods. You've strayed
1: into cats, recognized as yeah. obligate carnivores, yeah. and we're talking about carbohydrate and the inability to utilize carbohydrates appropriately and the uh, the corresponding inappropriate influence rea- uh, insulin reaction to yeah. that carbohydrate and the development of diabetes which of course is a major problem in human nutrition as well at the yeah. moment um, the addiction to to carbohydrate sugars but yeah. where in your opinion where is this carbohydrate that's going into cats coming from
2: well it's in the extruded dry foods. Because right. they, they, they've got a carbohydrate, they've often got a carbohydrate type base to them. So that's what mm-hmm. it is. It's in the dry foods, not so much that's in the. That, that's uh, to uh, bind you know, it, make it a. To that's do. what binds it together to give it like a kibble. You know the kibble type foods. Yeah. That's, well, why that's why, why are we doing from. this? What, yeah. Why is that happening?
1: Uh,
2: because it's a it's a, it's it's a utilisable source of food which the cat can use, um, and over the years you've got to remember that feeding pets and prepared foods only started after the war after the first world war because before that they were just fed whatever the household gave them which was their own food which would have been a mixture of veg dogs certainly would have had a mixture cats would maybe more have had meat but it would have been always a mixture and it would have been leftovers nearly always except for very good families who had you know working dogs then they would have their own concoction but they did all always used to make a cereal, some sort of biscuit and it was biscuits came out before Complete Foods did. The whole thing of Complete Foods is relatively new. That's 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 a relatively new thing. Mm-hmm. And in fact in some ways um, that might not be perfect either. I haven't got time to go into that right now, but there are some issues about what, what the agencies say are what should go into a Complete Pet Food. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the issues is mm-hmm. and I've written to both AFCO and FedEAF on this and of course get blanked is that I've, I've tried for a company to formulate foods just using basic food ingredients, right? And it appears to me that it's impossible to make a complete food that meets all those requirements without adding at the end some sort of vitamin and mineral supplement mix at the end. And that's what all the pet food manufacturers do to make sure they raise levels of things which are low, to comply, they have to add this you know, artificial mixture in, which is odd because cats and dogs have not evolved to require an artificial nutritional Ooh. supplement to be added in, which begs the question that the guidelines that are set aren't right. I mean, I, I, and to be fair, though, I think Feni and Africa will say they know it's not <coughs> perfect. They absolutely know that. Um, but sure. as long as we meet the minimums, we should be right. But it appears to be impossible to make a food without adding a, a mix in now i i have read one website in america where one company claims that they do not add anything in other than mm. the, well natural ingredients but what does that mean you know
0: we're, we're, we're having to add ingredients to, to pet foods uh here's the simple answer Let, let's feed them all a the raw chicken a day okay you know that's it's natural it's uh you know healthy isn't it if you feed the whole chicken well they can get Bones, they can get uh, calcium from bones. They can get blood, a bit of iron in there, and they can get feathers or or a bit of fur if you yep. get the old mouse in there. So, yeah, you know, what's the problem, Mike? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, there's no problem in uh, feeding the nutritional contents of a carcass exclusively to a dog or a cat, providing you give them the right balance of the carcass. A lot of people i know who are feeding raw are feeding basically homemade raw and a lot of them that means you know mm. just a, a, a chicken breast or or steak or cats sometimes it's coli fish or something like that so very heavily mainly just muscle meats basically is what they're getting yes. and that's totally un- imbalanced and will cause disease and does cause disease commonly but people don't recognize it mm. um, but <laughs> um, when you say causes fat, fat, disease that they, they, they know
0: diseases Oh, sorry, Mike. The, the, those diseases are, are diseases
2: of imbalance of nutrients, aren't In, they? Uh, deficiency. If you look at if you if you were to feed a dog all its calories just as skeletal muscle, there are only two things on, on a long list that I could show you of ingredients where there's a minimum requirement. There are only two things apart from protein. So that would provide you provide all the calories as meat will provide over five times as much protein as the animal actually needs, which is not a surprise because that's what you're giving it to get the calories in. Yeah. Uh, but then the only two things that are above the line for minimum requirements are um, potassium and magnesium. Uh-huh. And that's because they're intracellular. There's a long list of essential nutrients. Uh, obviously, there's zero calcium in really? meat, in yeah. muscle meat. Uh, and there's a huge, relatively huge amount of phosphorus So even if there were a trace of calcium, that would be wiped out by the phosphorus in an inverse calcium-phosphorus ratio, which we know will cause skeletal disease. But even then, there is an inadequate amount of phosphorus in meat to meet the minimum requirements. So you're still deficient in calcium and phosphorus. And then across the board, vitamins and minerals, you're just deficient in everything. So uh, meat is a totally different by itself. It's just a totally deficient thing. So what you would have to do is give the animal access to everything in the carcass that it needs to get all those essential nutrients. Mm -hmm. And then the animal would have to be intelligent enough or instinctively intelligent enough to restrict eating areas of the carcass which would be toxic to it. So the best example of that is liver. We have to be careful here because some of the breeds of dogs we have might actually be okay. So the Alaskan breeds, for example, we know that they can tolerate huge amounts of fat intake, which if you live up there in the Arctic in the cold and the conditions and have to do work, you have to be able to get massive amounts of energy. The only way to get that into your body is in the form of fat. Now, if they couldn't tolerate high fat like we couldn't, uh, then they would have trouble. So dogs can, or certainly certain breeds of dogs, can tolerate massive levels and probably a relatively higher levels of liver as well. But the vast majority of us, absolutely not. So anyway, on this plate of food, on this boxer dog uh, blog, it's, it shows a plate, and I could tell you at a glance, because when I qualified in the 70s, we used to see hypervitaminosis A all the time in dogs and cats. Why? <laughs> because after the war, uh, people were still eating liver. My dad used to cook those liver and onions at least three times a week. It was like a staple diet then because nobody could afford steak. So, um, in fact, you couldn't get a steak in, in, until the 60s. So a lot of people said liver. So they were giving their dog and cats regular bits of liver, particularly raw liver. And, you know, you uh, you only need to give a little bit of raw liver two or three times a week or even less than that sometimes to cause hypervisminosis A because that's how potent, um, you know, it, it is. And the I liver. think so it's, it's,
0: it's fused vertebrae, isn't it? awful
2: awful disease so Sorry, oh well yeah it, it causes new bone around all joints okay mm. and it's it's absolutely typical on an x-ray because you can see a space between the new bone that's formed and the periosteum all right mm. and that's almost it's it's almost pathognomonic for uh hypervitaminosis a It is not arthritis now you, you can you can get an arthritic response under it and periosteum can be Damage because of the the bony uh, parts causing mm. uh, difficulty with range of movement and pain and things like that, uh, and you can get secondary arthritis. But actually, it doesn't cause arthritis. It's just new bone around joints and around the neck in particular in cats. So they have stiff necks or pain on moving neck or lameness mm. in the legs and things like that. And it's classic. Hey, and there's lots of that? Uh, well, uh, you have to take them off the excess vitamin A that's the first thing you can do so the nutritional adequacy of these foods is very questionable uh, even with the uh, prepared commercially prepared ones and I've not seen uh, uh, you know I I will tell you that in the study that we did at Nottingham uh, some of the worst ones another one was the complete foods which had more problems not complying with mineral and trace element amounts where the raw foods were some of the worst okay and the absolute best with the veterinary diets that's what i'll say uh, and uh, there's been as far as I, I can find no evidence to show that any of these foods are actually uh, complete and balanced as they should be there was a a paper published online which the pro raw veterinary group said did show that they were um, they complied with afco and things like that and in fact vets were involved in the study and published it online and it's available if you want to go and find anyone's don't look at it, just look up online, raw proof, and you'll find it. And if you read it, you'll find that actually far from proving that their their food, it was, it was sponsored by one of the companies – Far from proving their foods were complete and balanced, it proved they were incomplete and not balanced. But the vets who wrote the report tried to justify it, saying, well, their products were so so much superior in quality that Fediaf obviously had the standards wrong, which, of course, is absolute nonsense.
0: I'm going to break, break you off a little bit there, because I'm going to just tell you, I, I know as a, as a lifelong BSAVA uh, member, and, uh, and proponent yeah. you, you know very well the BSAVA's stance the British American Veterinary Association's yes. stance on, on raw food which yes. matches the, the American Association of Veterinary Surgeons and the World Small Animal Veterinary Association's no. stance no. Uh, no, it we, we, no it doesn't No ah. it doesn't It doesn't I'm sorry it does not I was hoping if I fed you that line you might <laughs> Yeah there we go there's a bit of a feed
2: line so carry well, on. I know yep. about this you see I do know about my topic Uh, And it just, uh, all of the American government agencies and Mm -hmm. all of the American veterinary associations unanimously totally condemn the feeding of raw meats to pets. End of story, because they they understand, because they've suffered a lot from the risks associated with it. In this country, the British Veterinary Association, the BSAVA, Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, BVNA, none of them, have taken the issue of risks to people in particular seriously enough uh, and they have basically downplayed it. And basically what the BSAVA says on their website is if you you want to feed raw to your dog, uh, employ hygienic precautions and take the advice of your vet. That's what it says. All the other associations in the world absolutely condemn it. And the reason they condemn it is because what people are failing to recognize is that if you feed raw meat well to yourself or to your dog you can be perfectly healthy your dog can be or your cat can be perfectly healthy nearly always will be if they are healthy in the first place but they are shedding that pathogen into the environment and because dogs and cats lick the perianal region they spread it across the coast and in the mouths and liverpool university have done some great studies looking at the Oral concentration of very serious pathogens in the mouth of dogs fed um, raw meats. And basically, they are shedding, over a third of dogs fed raw are shedding serious pathogenic E. coli and sometimes, and someone else sometimes, in, uh, from their bodies into the environment, which anybody who strokes them can get. Now, there was an outbreak of uh, Campylobacter. Uh, uh, and listeria and
0: toxoplasma compiler back to clostridium yeah yeah and keep going keep going tb uh, yersinia uh, yersinia yeah, tuberculosis, tularemia, it kind of now there's the real worry is kind of that we free that
2: when i lecture on it I, I only i only lecture on the zoonotic uh, viruses yeah you haven't mentioned avian flu um, there was a in, in, in there was an outbreak of avi- a serious avian flu in cats, which killed lots of cats in New York uh, State a couple of years ago. One of the vets who handled one of the dead cats contracted avian flu, serious avian flu. He didn't die, thank goodness, but he got it. Now, in every other outbreak, as far as I know, they never found out where those cats got the avian flu from. In every other outbreak, in big cats, tigers, and in uh, in uh, zoos and in domesticated cats, in in uh, in the Far East and in um, in Germany, uh, the outbreaks have always been always been from consumption of infected birds, poultry particularly, but also wild birds. Mm. So mm. they don't know where the outbreak came from. So let's come, let's come back to. But the, the most serious thing is this is not this is not a hypothetical thing. A person in this country in this a person in this country has died as a direct result of contact with dogs fed raw pet food in this country. And that was a very small cluster of E. coli that was called sugar E. coli, which causes, uh, unfortunately, it can cause kidney failure. It's the most common cause of acute kidney failure in children in the UK. And in this outbreak, there were four, just four patients in this cluster. Uh, in that, and in that cluster, um, three of them were children, one was an adult, and one of them died as a direct result of contracting that infectious agent from dogs being fed raw. Three of the dogs were being fed a prepared raw pet food and the other dog uh, was being fed raw tripe, which had exactly the same strain of E. coli in it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's undeniable. Now, uh, uh, only a year earlier, there'd been an outbreak of 30 people getting that particular infection in Dorset Um. I don't think anybody died, but I know that two children were hospitalised in intensive care. And in that outbreak, what they found was in the very first case, they found the same infectious agent, which is the same type of uh, E. coli, in animal faeces in the garden, but they didn't work out what animal it came from. And then in two subsequent households that got infected, the house cats had the same infectious agent on board now they again mm. in that situation they, in those days they weren't asking questions about has anybody here been in contact with the dog and was it fed raw or anything like that they didn't ask questions about pets they only asked about going on farms and petting farms because they knew they could get it from there so mm. so in that case so they never found out so they don't know whether the cats got infected first and gave it to the people or whether the people got it first and gave it to the cats and of course they had no idea what the cats were being fed because they never asked the questions Eighteen months later, they were asking questions about pets because that had been flagged up to them, and they found that actually it was pet food that was causing that that cluster of fall. So that's so it is serious, and there was an outbreak. I'm going um, to sorry, I'm going to add
0: sorry, sorry, Mike, I'm, I'm busting the games like, as I tend yeah. to do, and, and just add to the mix uh, antimicrobial resistance, yeah. which is a huge problem in Absolutely. the in the medical field, uh, human and veterinary. Exactly. Uh, and I, I'm going to ask you: is, is there an association between feeding raw diets and yep. an increase in that's exactly what Liverpool the answer
2: is Yes, that's exactly what Liverpool have found. That uh, mm-hmm. these these dogs being fed raw are shedding multiple drug-resistant E. coli, thirty over thirty percent of them. So I, I now I'm a vet, and I've always been very animal centric. Obviously, <laughs> I no longer. Will stroke a dog or allow a strange dog to lick me, unless I know they're not getting any raw at all. I, that's I as a vet now, do not stroke strange dogs. So that's where I'm going to go back to that because you you raised a very important thing about multiple drug resistance. Now, one yes. of the organisms which is a big problem for humans and for us is Campylobacter because that's multiple yes. drug resistant. And there was an outbreak of Campylobacter across 17 states in America. Uh, Not that many people were involved, I think 130, I think, or 100-odd people were involved, um, and only 30 of them were hospitalised and nobody died. But what was important about that outbreak was every single person, so 98% of the people in that outbreak had contracted the infection by stroking a puppy in the week before, and all those puppies had been distributed mainly through one pet store distributor so that study shows proves you do not have to come into contact with the food at all to contract these infectious agents all you need to do is to stroke the animal that's been fed the food that's given it the infection and they're carrying it and that's what people don't realize and that's why when I talk to vets in Mm -hmm. practice who are pro-raw and I, I was in a practice not that long ago actually in Sussex uh, and someone who's a long time and was feeding her own animal and I pointed out this and the salmonella you know we know that salmonella numbers in raw pet foods has been going up in the UK the latest figures show it's going up year on year because they're now looking for it and they're finding it and uh, the one we haven't talked about um <coughs> pardon me um the, you know there are others which I know that some of the trading standards companies in the UK have been trying to close down some of these raw pet food manufacturers because they are repeatedly putting into the environment foods which are carrying salmonella or, um, you know, one of the other serious infectious agents, which they don't want. A listeria monocytogenes, you the
1: main one. Well, I, sure. think, I think what, I can, what can I can take from all of this, Mike, is uh, Julian, that's the last time I'm stroking your wife's puppies.
0: He doesn't feed raw, does he? Oh, oh, that, that um, sounds so. bad. That sounds bad. Oh, did I forget a night <laughs> <very annoyed laughs> for that? We, we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> move on. We'll move on from that. Jim, um, Jim, <laughs> Mike, we've we've opened the <laughs> <we've, we've> puppies. <opened, laughs> then we have we, we, opened as I knew we would a can of worms here, yeah. and and thank you so much for venturing into there. Um, we, you and I have spoken many, many times on, on, on raw food. And I, mm-hmm. I would just okay. say, um, just, just to sort of not play devil's advocate, because I'm, I'm part of the BSAVA, uh, but the, the feeling very much within the BSAVA is we we don't like raw food uh, because of, of, of those dangers. Um, what we want to do, though, is keep a dialogue open rather than Turn, turn clients away and make us from them a nice attitude. So we want to try and a, ed, educate people
2: if we can. Um, and I've got a question um, for you. I've got a question for you, though. It, yeah? Do you think it's right, is it okay for a veterinary surgeon to recommend to a client that they do something to the dog or cat that A, might harm them and can predictably could harm them and B... If it doesn't harm them, could harm people and children. And, 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 cle- and clearly, okay clearly,
0: out, absolutely clearly the answer is no. But I would I would advise okay. listeners, particularly those listeners who may be considering a raw diet, to, to look at the websites and, um, and and get the information. You've got to hear from Mike. Mike has, has given a very good exemplified picture, an Edmund's biggest picture of this. Um, like, we could go on for hours about this, and I mean, we, we 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 would. We would, and we probably will. But but I feel we must end somewhere. And so what I'm going to do is give you your certificate. CPD. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, and so here we go. This is, it says Certificate of Good meat is and Nourishment. a check on the back of it. The check's on the back, yeah. <laughs> so no, we, we covered that at the very start, Mike, sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, said, it says, this, this certifies that we should be respectful of others' beliefs, unless they are, frankly, wrong. And if in doubt, yeah. evidence it. And so what I've done is I've, I've shown, look, this, yeah. I was hoping to get in. these are crab claws, and I was hoping to get into the three people who've died in China recently <laughs> through eating raw crabs. And oh, right. Right. Raw oysters, okay. well, we eat raw, yeah. raw live oysters. You know, they're fine. Yeah. But here's, here's a little dog that yeah. was very unwell through um, salmonella a couple of years back yeah. um, uh, probably yeah. eating a, a raw diet uh, now here's lovely French cheese now Listeria uh, Listeriosis yeah. we yeah. all know the danger of that in, in pregnant yeah. people here's yeah. some lovely sushi
2: yeah
0: um, um, but to get back to oh and here's a nice rare steak at the bottom oh. yeah. But, yeah but but in the middle here anyone recognise what that is do you recognise what that is it looks like a, a sourdough it, it does it's a, it's a type of fungus
2: okay
0: yeah yep so it is yeah. called fistulina hepatica or beef steak product, yeah. and there is evidence yes. to suggest that they have been harvested uh, for at least a couple of hundred thousand years um now they yeah. they must be cooked and they must be cooked uh it or, or they're best yeah. cooked in a bit of milk but they must be least spoiled because otherwise they are in- inedible and so we know that, that, that this knowledge yeah. of cooking has been going on for many, many centuries. Why why yes, yeah. spoil it all and say, well, let's not, let's not bother cooking with these anymore? Um, yeah.
2: However... Well, if, the, if the motivation, if sure the motivation we'll for go- wanting to feed raw is because you don't like commercial production process, that's fine. Get, hopefully, a balanced set of raw materials and just cook it before you give it to the dog. There was an outbreak of botulism where there was a carcass that was in Mm. in a freezer uh, uh, and actually what happened was uh, they they had a flood and they lost the electric and they never opened the freezer later it froze again obviously when the electric came back Mm. on Mm. then the carcass cut in two one owner took half the carcass away and fed it raw to her dogs and she had dogs dying from botulism the other (laughs) owner took half the carcass away and cooked it and fed it to her dogs and none of her dogs got ill there's a moral
0: in that somewhere there, there is really isn't there and Mike, on that note it's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you it really is uh, brilliant. and we could, we could go on and on it's been an absolute pleasure to meet
1: you Mike you. so all it beholds for me to do is to say thank you very much indeed Mike Davis absolutely illuminating and educational and entertaining evening and yeah. if any of our listeners have enjoyed what they've heard tonight don't forget yeah. to click yeah. like subscribe it really does make a difference and tune in to the next episode of veterinary ramblings with no further ado may your dog go with you mike and yours
0: cheers may your dog go with you Cheers. cheers thank you very much indeed